This episode of the Art of Manliness podcast is brought to you by Squarespace. You got an idea you want to make a reality. You got to have a website for that. Make it a reality with Squarespace. Squarespace makes it easy to turn your idea into a unique website, showcase your work, blog or publish content, even sell products and services of all kinds in just a few clicks. With 24-7 award-winning customer support, you can customize everything from look and feel to settings and products using beautiful templates created by world-class designers. And there's nothing to install, patch, or upgrade ever. Head to squarespace.com manliness for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code manliness to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. In recent years, there's been a lot of books and blogs put out on how to become happier. But what if searching for happiness actually results in unhappiness? And to get happiness, we need to be looking for something else. That's what my guest argues in her book. Her name is Emily Esvani Smith, and she's the author of the book, The Power of Meaning, Finding Fulfillment in a World Obsessed with Happiness. We begin our discussion today talking about the difference between happiness and meaning and why the latter brings more fulfillment. Emily then highlights research that shows more and more Westerners are reporting their life lacks meaning and theories as to why that is. She then breaks down the three pillars of a meaningful life are and what we can do to experience them. Emily and I then discuss whether it's really possible to create meaning by yourself and whether or not it requires being embedded in a religious or spiritual tradition. After the show's over, check out the show notes at aom.is slash power of meaning. Emily joins me now via clearcast.io. Emily Esfahani-Smith, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. You wrote a book called The Power of Meaning, where you look at the science, the latest research about what it means to live a meaningful life. I'm curious, what got you started exploring the science of meaning? There, so there's, there's a long answer to that question and a short answer. So the long answer is, I think, you know, for, for, for most of my life, I've been interested in this question of meaning and it goes back to experiences that I had in my childhood. So I was raised in Montreal, uh, living in a Sufi meeting house. And for those who might not know, Sufism is a school of mysticism that's associated with Islam. So if you, the poet Rumi, many people have heard of, he was a Sufi, the whirling dervishes were Sufis. And living in the meeting house meant that twice a week, Sufis, these spiritual seekers would come to our home and they would sit on the ground and meditate for several hours. They would tell stories from the lives of ancient Sufi saints and mystics. And a central part of their practice was loving kindness, a principle that's, of course, central to a lot of religious and spiritual paths, and also service, so, so acts of charity. And what was interesting about these Sufis was that, you know, many of them had led really hard lives. Some of them were refugees who had come to the, to Canada or to the United States from the Middle East. Others were Westerners who had been beaten up by life in other ways. And in spite of the, the difficulties and the adversities, they found meaning and comfort in this spiritual practice that was pretty demanding of them. And I think growing up surrounded by people like that, by people who always put others first, who weren't so focused on themselves and 
their own desires left a mark on me. And it, it stayed with me, you know, even after I left home and went to college. But when I left home and I was kind of outside of that day-to-day experience of Sufism, I started to wonder, you know, what is it possible to lead a meaningful life outside of a religious and spiritual context? If you think about, you know, religion, it gives clear answers to the question of, you know, what is the meaning of life and how can I lead a meaningful life? And that was certainly true of Sufism as well. So outside of that, how do we find meaning? And that that question led me to studying philosophy and eventually to studying positive psychology. And this is where I get to the shorter answer to that question, which is the science of positive psychology, which is the study of well-being, was starting to come out with some really provocative research around the time that I was in graduate school showing things like the pursuit of happiness is associated with being a taker rather than a giver. And that if you kind of pursue happiness the way that our culture encourages us to do, it can actually make you unhappy. And so instead of pursuing happiness, the research was kind of suggesting that we should be focusing on something else, on living a meaningful life. And then thinking back to the Sufis who I grew up with, it kind of came together and made sense to me. And so I started writing more about this. And eventually, one of my articles gave rise to the book that you mentioned, The Power of Meaning. So let's talk about that, that difference between happiness and, and meaning. Because as you said, yeah, in the past, I'd say oh, past decade, there's been a lot of research coming out of positive psychology. And there's been a lot of popular authors who have taken that research and created, I don't know, you can call it like a cult of happiness if you want. There's lots of blogs, books, seminars, courses, and all on how to be happy. How are these folks defining happiness? And is that, and how is that different from you know, living a meaningful life. Yeah, I think I think you're absolutely right. There's definitely been this this flourishing of happiness research, happiness books in the last decade, even in the last two decades, I would say. And I, I remember one of the statistics I came across showed that you know there were several dozen books published a year on happiness back in the early 2000s, and now there are several thousand books published each year. So there's a real you know zeitgeist around happiness. People are obsessed with it. The research shows that it's, it's our number one value. It's what people want most in life. It's what people think is the be all end all of life. And that message really bothered me um, because there were. There were so many people I knew in my life, including the people I grew up with, the Sufis, who weren't focused on leading happy lives. They were focused on on leading a meaningful life instead. And that gets to your question about what the difference is between these two. So I would say I, I define happiness drawing on you know how psychologists and philosophers define it, which is as a positive mental and emotional state. So if you feel good, you're happy. If you feel bad, you're unhappy. And I know that, you know, different people might say, well, to me, happiness is, is actually a state of contentment or it's leading a meaningful life. But I, 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 def- I define it the way that the research defines it. And I also think that in day-to-day conversation, colloquially, in the way the media presents all of this happiness research, that's the way that we define it culturally as well. You know, if you think about all those articles about how to be happier, they're always accompanied by this big yellow smiley face. So I think just, you know, at its face value, happiness really is kind of this positive emotion. 
Meaning though is different. And I would say it's bigger than happiness. So leading a meaningful life, the defining feature of that is connecting and contributing to something beyond yourself, something bigger. And when people tell psychologists in research that their lives are meaningful, it's because three conditions have been satisfied. The first one is that they believe their lives have significance and worth. In other words, they believe their lives matter. The second one is that they believe they have a purpose. So some goal or principle that is in the future and that kind of propels them into the future. And finally, they believe their lives are coherent. In other words, they don't think of their experiences as random and disconnected, but those experiences make sense, their lives make sense, and life in general makes sense. So it sounds like it's possible to have a meaningful life, but not necessarily a happy one or vice versa. No, I think that that's exactly right. So it certainly may be the case that, you know, you, you, you are leading a meaningful life and you're also happy and that, you know, you have neither in your life, that you're neither happy and that your life isn't meaningful. But I think for most people day to day, you go through phases when you know, you feel happy, but your life doesn't necessarily feel meaningful. If you think about, you know, well, let's say your, your work is kind of not as high pressure as it, as it usually is. And so you're, you have more free time. And in that free time, you're, you know, going to the gym, you're going to the spa, you're going on vacation. And so it's kind of a fun, happy life, but those projects that gave your life meaning aren't there. On the other hand, you can also be leading a meaningful life and and not be happy. And I think a really good example of that is uh, Viktor Frankl, the Holocaust survivor. So he wrote this beautiful little book called Man's Search for Meaning, which is all about how some of the people in the concentration camps, despite how horrendous their circumstances were, were still able to find meaning, to have some sort of purpose that kept them going. He gives the example of, you know, one man who was suicidal and he only kind of came out of his suicidality by remembering that he had a son who was living elsewhere safely and that he needed to kind of fight for life so that he could survive the war and be reunited with his son afterwards. Yeah, that, that's that's really interesting. I think it's an important dichotomy, and I think uh, this is um, research Roy Baumeister been looking at the difference between meaning and happiness, and he's been a guest on the podcast before a couple times. Okay, yeah, he's he's great. His research is fascinating. You highlight in the book that so meaning is important. It gives us a sense of purpose. But you highlight in the book that more and more people today are reporting a lack of meaning in their life. Why is that? Why are more modern people saying their life doesn't feel meaningful? If you think about what what it is that has historically given people's lives meaning, it's it's things like religion and spirituality, community, tradition, your your allegiance to a country, the the, the, the sense the sense that there is a, a nation that you feel loyal towards, and those traditional sources of meaning, I think, are increasingly receding from public life. They're no longer default paths to meaning. I mean, certainly there, there are people who still use them to find meaning, but it used to be that these were just kind of default, you know, that you, you didn't really have to think too much about what made your life meaningful because it was programmed into how you lived your life, the institutions that you interacted with. 
And today, I think there's a lot of disruption that's emerged from the fact that these traditional forms of meaning are no longer at the center of our lives. And I think we see that in the the rise of mental illness all in all kinds of ways. I mean, depression has been rising for decades, rates of anxiety and loneliness. Of course, the opioid epidemic is something we hear about in the news all the time. Even suicide rates have been rising for decades. And, and a year or two ago in 2014, or, or I think it was 2016, the CDC released a report showing that the suicide rate in the United States had reached a 30-year high. And there's pretty interesting research that shows that when you look at all of these rising indicators of mental health, excuse me, of mental illness, that what's predicting them is the fact that people feel their lives are not meaningful. And so is this a problem that's unique to the United States or do other Western liberal democracies also have this problem of the, this meaning crisis? Mm-hmm. No, this meaning crisis, I think is, it's a problem of, of modernity. So any, any the Western developed countries or developed countries around the world, think of Japan, are also going through this meaning crisis. And I think that it, it represents what's going on is that there's kind of been a shift in values and there's a sociologist at the University of Michigan who who's who runs a project called the World Values Survey that that really dives into this and what what he's found is that as societies go through different stages of development you know from from pre-developed to developed to what he calls post-developed, they have these shifts in values that occur. So before you reach the stage of being a developed country, people are really focused on survival and and the values that come with that. In developed countries, the set of values that arise are tend to be materialistic and centered around self-advancement and and wealth and happiness. You know, it's, it's about me and how I feel and this kind of hedonistic lifestyle. And what's interesting is that this, this sociologist, um, his last name is Inglehart, he's found that our Western countries, even though we are in this state of kind of, you know, development oriented values that are more materialistic, less spiritual, spiritually fulfilling, we're now shifting into post-development where the values are much more anchored around these spiritual existential ideas like meaning, like creativity, like knowledge and curiosity. And I think that we're, we see signs of that shift happening in our culture, the way corporations, for example, are all of a sudden reorienting their missions around purpose, how schools are starting to teach character, things like that. So let's, let's talk about how institutions within modern liberal democracies are doing this, but outside the confines of religion. And, and even though religion does still play a role, that many people still find meaning in that. Let's talk about how it's looking now. So you'd highlight that you argue there are certain pillars that need to be in place for meaning to exist. And the first one is belonging. Let's talk about the issue of not feeling like you belong. Because that's, like you mentioned earlier, reports of isolation, loneliness are on the rise, despite the fact that we're more connected than ever. What do you think's going on there? It's, it's a really sad statistic. And one of, one of the saddest ones that I write about in my book is, you know, when, when researchers ask people 20, 30 years ago, how many confidants do you have in your life? How many people that you feel comfortable talking to about your, the most important issues? 
you know, decades ago, several decades ago, it, people said three people. Today, when you ask that same question, the most common response is zero. And, you know, I mentioned the the statistics about rising rates of loneliness. There's also a breakdown in, in civic institutions and community. People don't talk to their neighbors anymore. And, you know, there's, I think there are really interesting sociological reasons that are driving this. I remember reading a study several years ago talking about the rise of urbanization and how, you know, a story that you can tell about the United, United States over the last 200 years is the story of people moving from more rural settings to the big cities to find work and to make, make a new home and a new life. And what's accompanied that has been a rise in individualism. So, you know, a shift in values from community and duty and responsibility to, um, you know, f- free expression, self-esteem, self, um, self-expression. Uh, these are things that Roy Baumeister writes about and, and thinks about, as, as I'm sure you know. And so I think that this rising individualism that has these sociological causes is one of the reasons why we've seen this isolation because individualism is great and it comes with all kinds of benefits like like freedom and autonomy and control over your personal life but it also divorces us from that community where we have this sense of belonging that can ground us and and you know that's one of the reasons why I think we're seeing this rise in social isolation but we're also seeing again kind of a a trend in the opposite direction as well, where recognizing that this is a problem, you see a lot of communities and institutions trying to create community and belonging in new ways for people that gets them talking to each other again. And so does this sense of community, does it need to be face-to-face like in the real world or can, is it possible to do it virtually? Or is virtual, you know, virtually like that's not possible. That's why people feel lonely despite being connected. You know, I, I think that I think it's easy to to criticize social media for, for for exacerbating this problem, but I think that I think there's more to it than that. I mean, certainly people fe- can find a sense of belonging on social media if they're intentional about the way they use it. I um, you know, I, I, I we were I was talking about this at an event in in Texas last year and you know this question came up and a woman you know raised her hand she was sitting in the back of the bookstore and she you know she was in her 80s and she told me she said you know my purpose right now is to put together a family history that's this book that I I want to be able to pass down to my children and grandchildren and and for it to be this record of of who we were and the way that I've been able to fill out the different parts of my family tree is by going online and turning to Facebook and other social media sites to find people who are in our family who I wouldn't have known before. So, you know, she, she used this wonderful technology to kind of create this sense of belonging within her family and to form new connections and, and new forms of belonging with people she didn't even know before. That said, I think that if you're only relying on you know, these virtual forms of connection, then there's going to be something that's missing from your life. There, there's, there's research that's, that shows that there is something about the kind of kinetic, visceral interaction that you have with somebody 
face to face that really kind of replenishes you both psychologically and physically. There are actually kind of physical benefits to having these connect moments of belonging and connection with somebody else. You know, your, your brain waves actually kind of get on the same wavelength. Your, your heart rate and your hormone levels can kind of rise and fall together. So it, it's really interesting. And I think it shows that there is something vitally important about the face-to-face connections too. So maybe use social media technology to, you know, organize. I think that's what I, I find the most beneficial social media is organizing face-to-face meetups. Right, right, exactly. And and um and I think, you know, you know, celebrating other people's good news and keeping in touch with people, those kind of more basic forms functions of social media, I think those can also cultivate belonging in smaller ways. But you know, there is a, a price to pay, you know, with a sense of belonging. You get all these benefits, but you know, it does require you to go out of your way for folks that you know you'd rather not. You're just like, well, you know, I'm comfortable here. Do I really want to go over and help my friend move? Like, I mean, I think that's why one of the reasons people, you know, tend to be individualistic because it's you know it's it's hard work to to socialize and be connected with others. You're 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 100 right about that, and I would just say that. You know, the one of the things that you see when you look at the articles and the research about happiness is that there's this real quick fix mentality like, okay, if you just do these three things or check off these five boxes, you'll be happier and and that and then your life will be so much better. And it's not quite like that with a meaningful life. A meaningful life definitely takes work, it requires effort, and and it's because, you know the, it requires us to do things exactly like you're saying, like reach, reaching out to others, making ourselves vulnerable, turning down our own natural selfishness to be of service to somebody else. And that's not always easy, but it does leave us with this greater sense of satisfaction down the road. And I know that we all know from experience, the things that are most worth having are the things that are the hardest to work for. Yeah. And my experience has been whenever I've had that resistance, where I'm like, ah, I don't want to do this thing because uh, it's just going gonna, gonna, to gonna be annoying. But then you go to it and you have a great time. And afterwards, you're like, man, I'm really glad I did that. I, that I feel You feel happy, but also I, you feel like you did something meaningful. Right, right. No, exactly. I had a psychology professor in grad school who, who used to see patients clinically and he saw a lot of depression, uh, people who are experiencing depression, suffering from it. And he said that, you know, far more effective than prescribing them an antidepressant was prescribing them to go out and volunteer in their community because once they got involved, once they broke that shell of kind of, you know, self-focus and and, and, and self-rumination on what, what's wrong with me, what's wrong with the world, they, they not only felt like their lives were more meaningful, but they also felt happier because they were out there doing things and that made them feel useful. We're going to take a quick break for a word from our sponsors. Harry's founders know that a great shave comes down to great blades made with sharp, durable steel that lasts. That's why they make some of the highest quality blades in the world, priced much lower than the leading brand. And they'll even give you a full refund if you don't love your shave, as long as you let them know within 30 days. Harry's stands behind the quality of their blades, so they created a $13 gift set that comes with everything you need for a close, comfortable shave. You get a weighted ergonomic candle, a five-blade razor with a lubricating strip and trimmer blade, rich lathering shave gel, a travel blade cover, and you can claim yours by going to harrys.com slash 
manliness. Love Harry's. I stopped using the multi-blade cartridges a long time ago because I just never got a comfortable close shave with them. Tried Harry's out and it's it's a litter, it's a great shave. I don't get the razor irritation or the bumps that I did with some of the other brands out there. Super comfortable shave for a multi-blade razor. If you want to try you want to redeem a trial set for $13, go to harrys.com slash manliness. Make sure you go to harrys.com slash manliness to redeem the offer and let them know I send you to help support the show. Also buy Squarespace. With beautiful templates for a world-class designer, Squarespace makes it easy to turn your idea into a new and unique website. Customize everything from look and feel to settings and products, all optimized for mobile right out of the box with built-in search engine optimization. You can showcase your work, blog or publish content, announce a special project, or even sell products and services of all kinds in just a few clicks. Then you can use Squarespace's analytics analytics to help you grow in real time. And there's nothing to install, patch, or upgrade ever. Though if you do have a question, Squarespace's award-winning 24-7 customer support is there to help. Take it from me, someone who's created lots of websites. If you don't want to spend the money on hiring a designer or you don't want to take the time to learn to code, Squarespace is the way to go. Point and click and you got a website up in minutes. Head over to squarespace.com manliness for a free trial. When you're ready to launch, use the code manliness to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Again, that's squarespace.com manliness offer code manliness. And now back to the show. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about the next pillar, which is purpose. What what are we talking about when, we talk, when we're talking about a purpose? Is it like, have to be some like grand giant thing, like I'm going to change the world or can it be smaller? So definitely, I think a lot of people, when they think about purpose, they think of that big capital P purpose that they need to find, their capital C calling. Once they find it, that, you know, for the rest of their lives, they'll have this really strong sense of meaning. But you know, for most people, that's not what purpose is going to look like. In fact, only one third of people, according to the research, have this feeling of their job is a calling, this, this sense of, you know, I, I have found my capital P purpose. And for the rest of us, you know, we're, we're going to find purpose in kind of smaller, more local ways. And so, you know, what is purpose? Purpose is it's defined as a goal or a principle that organizes your life and that involves making a contribution to others. So for one person, it might be something like working on a cure for cancer. That's, that's a purpose. And it's, it's this big purpose for another person. It could be, you know, raising their children, being a good person, volunteering in their community. I spoke to a woman who was working as a, a custodian at a hospital in Michigan. And she told me that her purpose is not cleaning bedpans and mopping the floor, but it's helping sick people heal. So there's something about purpose that Yes, it can come in all shapes and sizes, but it also involves connecting what you're doing to something bigger. Yeah, I mean, I think you, I think you raised this point about I forgot which philosopher or psychologist talked about. You know, people who back in the 30s during the Great Depression were just, you know, suicide was increasing, the sense of meaningless was increasing, and one of the vices like just go get a job. It can be anything. And you start there and uh, it might not be grand, but like you have that purpose for that day because you, you're, you're contributing in some small way to, to other people. Exactly. I think, I think it was, it was the chapter where I talk about Will Durant, who's a, a, a beautiful writer and historian in his own right. And he, he talks about, you know, even, you know, if you feel this sense of despair and lethargy and, you know, alienation from the world, just doing something, anything, even if it's volunteering, even if you're not getting paid, you know, whatever, going, you know, getting a job at the local coffee shop is the first step towards 
finding that meaning that can sustain you. And it's because it re-engages you with the world. So purpose, another way to think about purpose is that it's having a role to play in your community, within your family. And when people feel like they don't have a role to play, when suddenly, you know, parents become empty nesters or you lose your job or you retire, then that's when people experience a crisis of purpose. So it's important to kind of, you know, quickly reassert those roles in your life in new ways or find new roles. And, and so how do you, let's say you, you're starting from scratch, right? You're, you're, you know, having some existential depression, you get a job and that's helping you engage with the world. How do you start finding that larger purpose? Is it something that you can actively find proactively find, or is it something that as you engage with the world, you'll sort of stumble upon? I think, I think it can be both. And I think that one of the the mistakes that we might make when we think about purpose is overthinking it. So, you know, purpose is really about figuring out what your your talents are, what your strengths are, and how you can use them to serve the world and to serve others. I, I believe, and, you know, I, I think I'm in good company with, with a lot of other philosophers from Manuel Kant to Viktor Frankl, who we talked about, that everybody here has some sort of purpose. In other words, they have some contribution that they can make to the world. And that's what that contribution is, is their choice. I think it's not necessarily predetermined. Now, some people might be born with a calling for music or for computer science or whatever the case may be. But for those of us who are just trying to figure it out, you know, sit down and reflect on what your strengths and talents are, and then see if you can find ways to put them to use either in what you're doing or in new contexts. The research shows that when you use your strengths and talents in, in the work you're doing, it doesn't matter what that work is, you feel a greater sense of purpose to that work because you're kind of taking the best in you and giving it to the world. So um, so I think that, you know, you can kind of actively figure out and pursue what your purpose is, or you can kind of just be out there in the world, you know, giving to it, using your strengths and seeing if that kind of from the ground up gives you this sense of purpose. It sounds like you can have more than one purpose, right? Is that true? It is true. So, you know, there's a psychologist named Eric Erickson who was 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 alive in the 20th century, and he had this idea of life as a series of developmental stages. So, you know, when you're young, your your job is to figure out who you are, what your identity is. As you get older, your job is to become what he calls generative. In other words, contributing to the younger generations, whether it's by mentoring people or raising children or what have you. And so baked into that idea is this sense that as our lives change and develop and as we grow, the things that we're supposed to be doing and that give our lives purpose can change as well. So I mentioned parenting, you know, for many parents, like their kids are their main source of, of purpose. And, you know, that that's kind of a prominent source of purpose in, in, in middle age. But then once your kids leave the house, once you retire, your purpose might be something else. It might be becoming involved in your religious organization or finding a second purpose. There's, I write about this organization called Encore, that helps people who are retired embark upon kind of a whole new career. So you have a police officer um, who then retires and decides that he wants to start creating museum art because 
being an artist was this passion that he had that he, you know, wasn't able to fulfill during the, the earlier parts of his life. So certainly it can change over time. So the next pillar you talk about is storytelling. What role does that play in, in creating a meaningful life? So storytelling is an interesting pillar. And I found that when I go out and I talk to people about this pillar, it's it's one of the ones that resonates with them most strongly and also can, can surprise them. So storytelling. So, you know, we think of, we're surrounded by stories all day long, right? You know, we have movie theaters, we have television shows, novels, you know, comic strips, children's books, there are stories all around us. But the story that I'm talking about with this pillar is the story that you tell yourself about yourself, about how you became the person that you are today. And my, I think my intuition is that the reason this pillar surprises people is because we don't always realize that we have this ongoing narrative going on in our mind at all times. And that because, you know, this narrative is going on in our mind at all times, we, it's shaping our lives in ways that we don't realize it. And we also have the power to change that story if it's a story that we don't like. So let me give you an example. So the field of psychology that deals with this is called narrative psychology, narrative identity. Okay, so there's this device in narrative psychology that helps illustrate the power of storytelling. So let's say you had a really important interview this morning and you, you know, you went to, you know, you went to bed early for it and you were really excited for it. But when the morning came around, you slept through your alarm because, you know, you just, you're, you're so tired and, you know, finally you get up and you're in a rush and you're trying to make up for the time that you lost and you're rushing out the door and you realize that your car keys aren't where you left them. And so all of a sudden you're even later than you were because you can't find your keys and you rummage around and finally you find those keys and you make your way out the door and it's, you know, really icy outside and you had meant to salt your steps the day before, but you didn't. And so the steps are all slippery and you fall down the stairs and not only are you late, but you're also kind of wet and injured and the morning is just off to a disastrous start. So those are three data points from your morning, right? So you, you wake up late, you lose your car keys and you slip and fall. And then you take those, those data points and you start constructing a story about the kind of person you are. You say, man, you know, I, I don't have my life together. I can't do anything right. This is why nobody will marry me. This is why, you know, I'm not going to get that job that I'm interviewing for. My life sucks and the world sucks and it's just terrible. Or you could, you know, reflect on your morning or your week and think about all those other data points that you're not incorporating into your story. Like maybe you, um, you, you couldn't find your car keys the night before because you had put them in your coat pocket the night before thinking that, okay, if they're in my coat, then I will just put my coat on and rush out the door and it'll make things more efficient. But you forgot that you did that, but it was something you did that, you know, that shows some foresight and show that you were trying. And, you know, maybe you didn't, salt the stairs last night because you were busy helping your neighbor bring her groceries in and then time ran out. And so thinking about 
those other data points and incorporating those into your story as well. That's what storytelling really is about. It's, it's taking the full picture and telling a story that empowers you and that moves you forward. But how do you, with these stories, how do you make sure you're not fooling yourself with them to, to create that meaning? Or, or do you have to fool yourself to some, sometimes fool yourself to create meaning out of our lives? That, that's a great question. And I think that one way to think about it is like this. So human beings have a really strong negativity bias. It's kind of been shown consistently in the research. And Roy Baumeister, who you know, we've mentioned a number of times here, he's actually written a great paper in psychology about how the, the bad is stronger than the good when it comes to what we pay attention to and how things affect us. So kind of negative experiences, p- painful emotions affect us much more strongly and re- we remember them much more significantly than the positive ones. And I think that taking that principle to storytelling, we have to acknowledge that when something bad happens or when we experience something negative or painful emotions, those are going to affect us and therefore be much more likely to make it into the story that we tell just because of the powerful effect that they have on us. So when we're trying to craft a story in a way that actually reflects the reality that we're living, we have to work against that negativity bias. And therefore, we have to actively seek out and and remember and incorporate into our narrative the good things that happened as well. So when I talk about storytelling, I'll get a question like yours that, that'll be something like, well, how do we know we're not deluding ourselves if we're just kind of spinning the story in a more positive way? I think that we're actually deluding ourselves by telling these negative stories because they don't reflect the reality. They reflect the fact that our brain's pinpoint and focus on one or two negative events at the expense of all these positive things that are happening. Okay. Uh, that's, I like that. So another pillar you talk about is transcendence. Uh, what do you mean by that? And uh, how do we experience it more in our lives? Transcendence. So transcendence, it's, 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 it's this big word. It's a, it's a mouthful, but I think, I think we all kind of know what, what this one is about. So transcendent experiences are those moments when we're lifted above the hustle and bustle of daily life and when we're even lifted out of our own minds, our own sense of self, and feel connected to something much bigger than ourselves. So, you know, for a lot of people, that can happen within a religious context, you know, meditating, praying, going to a church service, temple, mosque, whatever, when you're where you're engaged in these rituals and kind of liturgical moments of of transcendence you know you're you're something is taking you outside of space and time and connecting you to in in a religious context what you might call god but there are secular ways to experience this as well you know being in nature being in the woods ralph waldo emerson wrote beautifully about this, as did Henry David Thoreau, the sense of kind of the divine that they felt um, walking in the woods or or being out at Walden Pond in, in Thoreau's case. For a lot of other people, you know, music, art, looking up at the stars at night, these are all also portals to transcendence. And one of the emotions that transcendent experiences evoke is 
awe. So this feeling of just being so small in the midst of something much larger than yourself and something that's, that's mysterious and beyond words. And I think that the reason these experiences are so meaningful to people and people who've had them say that they're among the most meaningful experiences of their lives is precisely because they inspire such awe. So, so they make you feel small and tiny, but that also means that all of your problems and all of the petty grievances of day to day life suddenly become muted and they're not, you know, yelling at you inside your mind like they usually are. And instead, what happens is you feel this connection with something bigger and therefore you feel like you're part and parcel of this, of this bigger thing. And that, that can be really reassuring to people. Yeah. For me, awe is like the way I just, when I, how I experience, I, I feel both really small, but also big at the same time. I don't know if that makes any sense. No, definitely. That, that's exactly the paradox of transcendence that, you know, mystics throughout the ages have described. Yeah. And so anything you can do, I mean, it's, I guess, transcendence, it takes the away from the focus off yourself, like you become less self-conscious. I think like with all these things, like, you know, I think storytelling kind of makes you, the story is you, but like belonging and all that stuff, it, it, it takes the focus off yourself. And as you do that, you start feeling a more sense of meaning in your life. Exactly. It's, you know, meaning is all about, you know, connecting to something other than yourself. And even with storytelling, even though, yes, it is about, the story that you tell tell yourself about who you are, there is research showing that when people tell what are called redemptive stories about their lives, the so stories that have, you know, suffering and adversity, but then there's a silver lining of some sort, some sort of growth that happens or something good that comes of the adversity, that people who tell those kinds of stories are more generative, which is the word I mentioned earlier in relation to Eric Erickson. And it means that they're more likely to contribute to others. So even telling a certain kind of story can lead you outside of this self-involvement towards connecting to others. So do you need to experience all these pillars at once to feel a sense of meaning in your life, or can you just experience one of them at a time? You know, it's it's certainly the case that having or experiencing all of these pillars will probably give you a deeper sense of meaning, or at least, you know, if if you know one of those pillar, pillars isn't present, you can lean on, on another one. But I think for most people, there will be one or two of the pillars that's more prominent and more important for them than the other ones. So, you know, maybe for you, belonging is is really key. And for me, it's storytelling. You know, I went out and I, I talked to some people at, in Silicon Valley last year about this, this book. And when I got around to Transcendence, I just got these totally blank stares. Like they had no idea what I was talking about. And it was kind of funny because that had, had not, not happened before. Everybody, you know, in other venues knew what transcendence was about. But here in this particular community, for whatever reason, that pillar was not resonating. So I do think it's it's kind of individual specific, which pillar will confer the most meaning and be the most important to you. So uh, as I was reading your book and as you know, listening to our conversation, thinking, man, this like, creating meaning outside of religion sounds like a lot of work. I mean, as you said, you mentioned earlier, like religion, there's sort of the default. You go in, you have that sense of belonging because there's a community there that gives you a sense of purpose, right? From the get-go. There's a story that you are involved in. You experience transcendence. It's all like packaged there for you to go. And now with, you know, people being less religious, it sounds like, man, it's just, 
it's kind of burdensome to like create meaning. I mean, even Nietzsche said you kind of had to be some sort of ubermensch to to live a, a meaningful life in in a world post religion. So, I mean, what would you say is 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 creating personal meaning like really hard and um, requires a lot of work? I do think it, it it takes effort, but I don't think that it's impossible or even that you have to be some kind of you know super duper being to to make it happen. I mean. I think we're all engaged in this process of trying to lead a meaningful life. And I know that you, you had Jordan Peterson on a previous podcast and that's, that's kind of the beauty of his message is that we're the, the, the task of each human being is to kind of try to craft some sort of meaning and some sort of sense out of this crazy experience of being alive. And I think that, you know, it's, it's harder to do it today because those, those traditional forms of meaning aren't there to just guide us along. But that doesn't mean that we can't take the initiative and, and, you know, figure out ways to build these pillars in our lives by ourselves. In fact, you know, some, there's a tradition in philosophy, the existentialists who say that that's, that makes the whole quest that much more exciting and that much more meaningful because you're doing it for yourself. But it also means that it's it's much more effortful because no one's kind of guiding you along. Yeah, you talk about the myth of Sisyphus is a, a favorite of mine. Uh, who wrote, was it Camus or Sartre that did that one? Uh, Camus. Camus, yeah. Yeah, so for those of you who haven't read it, myth of Sisyphus, uh, it, it's, it's, a, it's, it, it's a good existential thought experiment to check out. Well, well, Emily, this has been a great conversation. Where can people go to learn more about your work? They can visit my website, which is my name, emilyesfahanismith.com. I'm also on Twitter at msfahanismith, and you can also find me on Facebook. And I'll say that on my website, there's a forum where you can email me, and I that those emails come straight to my inbox, and I always try to respond. So please feel free to reach out. Awesome. Emily Esfahani Smith, thank you much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Fred. My guest today was Emily Asfani Smith. She's the author of the book, The Power of Meaning. It's available on amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. You can also find more information about her work at emilyasfanismith.com. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash power of meaning, where you can find links to resources, where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. And if you enjoy the show, if you got something out of it, I'd appreciate it if you give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. As always, thank you for your continued support. And until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay manly.